This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. All right, it's been quite a week, really. When you think about it, uh, you know, President uh, Trump becoming uh, inaugurated, I guess, on Friday. And then Saturday, uh, he's tweeting and whining about the uh, the size of the crowd at the inauguration. And the his press secretary says it's the biggest crowd there ever has been in the world. And and we're oh no is this not is this what's going to happen is this the direction it's going and and you know people are, are worried people are thinking what's going on here what kind of reality show is this and then Monday boom NAFTA Tuesday boom pipelines Wednesday it's Wall Wednesday it's Wall Wednesday right here on CHML it's the Wall today this guy by this guy's going to have all the world's problems solved by Friday at this rate. Uh, so lots of uh, chatter as uh, today's agenda is the wall and moving ahead. Uh, what is it? Is the bark worse than the bite? Let's bring in David Hyde, security consultant, David Hyde and Associates. And he is with us now. Hello, David. How are you today? Very good, Scott. How are you doing? Good. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We greatly do appreciate this. So what will this wall eventually look like? Do you have any idea? Well, Scott, if, if we listen to um, Mr. Trump's rhetoric or President Trump's rhetoric through the through the campaign, uh, it started out as being um, essentially the the U.S.'s version of the Great China Wall. Um, it was going to be, you know, 40 feet high, the, f- the full 2,000 miles of the southern border between U.S. and Mexico. And over time, um, his language and rhetoric has kind of morphed a little. It's still, the wall, of course, is still a very key platform uh, of his agenda. But you know, I think he's been talking about maybe a thousand miles might be a more appropriate target. Um, that's just something he's kind of mentioned in passing. Uh, the reporting goes. So I think at this stage right now, I think they're still studying, Scott, the feasibility of building this wall because the reality is campaign rhetoric is one thing. You can talk about puffing out your chest and how you're going to do certain things. But the border between the U.S. and Mexico is very topographically challenging. You know, there's lots of different reasons why you just can't build physically. You just can't build a consistent wall-type structure across the whole lot. There's the Rio Grande in Texas. There's rivers. There's uh, Arizona desert. There's swampland. Um, there's privately owned land. There's all kinds of reasons why uh, it's not just going to be a simple matter of signing a check here. So I think what we're going to see is an announcement that planning is underway that likely uh, there will be a wall of some description. But at the end of the day, Scott, um, there's many different ways to protect the border. I mean, I'm in the security field. We, we do protection all the time, not often on borders so much of major countries like the U.S. They have their own resources for that. But walls, fences, technology, aerial surveillance, staffing, there is ma- many, many ways that you can protect the border. And I suspect that we're going to end up with some type of a variable platform here. Yes, there'll be a wall in some strategic areas, but a lot of new fencing, a lot of new staff, and a lot of new emphasis put on protecting that border. Is it really a wall, or is it, like you're mentioning, a border crossing? I mean, you know, uh, I remember being in Europe a few years ago, and I was kind of surprised that you could move so freely from, you know, one country to the other without a passport, without a border crossing, this sort of thing. Um, You know, you think of the relationship that Canada has with the United States. There isn't a wall, but there's certainly controls, and there's certainly a border. Yeah, I mean, obviously there's a defined border and, and, and there are defined kind of checkpoints and crossing points. And where the risk of incursion is greater, like Mexican-U.S. border, you know, those areas tend to be fenced. 
Uh, they've had great success, for example, on the border with San Diego, California, with what's called a double fence. So there's a f- essentially a fence on the Mexican side, a fence on the American side. Mm-hmm. And then when someone, and, and there's a technology um, sensing and protecting the space in between, Scott. So when someone goes over or through that first fence, and it's not an easy feat, it's quite a r- robust fence, but they can get through it if they want to. They can yeah. cut through it. They can you know, try to tunnel under it. Mm-hmm. Um, if they do get into that area between, they, they've been detected. And now the U.S. Border Patrol has time to get resources over to that area before they can get to the second fence. So there's, there's, there's lots of different you know, approaches and ways that, that you can do this. Uh, but essentially, um, you know, he's promised to build this wall. It certainly is something that, um, you know, there are areas of the border that are quite porous between the, the Mexico and the U.S. And so I think if that's the strategy he's trying to get to, I believe that there are more cost-effective ways of protecting the border that maybe uh, would be, uh, you know, um, advantageous over just a very expensive and costly wall. And the problem is, Scott, when you build this wall, now we have to put staff across there to to protect that. Mm -hmm. I mean, yes, it's a a 30-, 40-foot wall, if you go by Trump's description, 10 inches thick, built about probably 7, 8 inches down into the ground uh, or more. Um, sorry, uh, I believe six or seven feet down underground, yeah. so, so tunneling mm-hmm. won't be able to be uh, undertaken. Um, but people are going to need to be protecting that wall, patrolling that wall, and responding to anyone who climbs over it. So you are introducing a whole new requirement for staffing as well. So uh, is this needed? Where's the balance? Where's the balance between border and wall? Well, I mean, n- no question that there's border uh, control is needed. And again, the risk, Scott, would dictate. So look at the Canadian-U.S. border. There are, of course, crossings. We need to regulate the access. But you and I both know there are, there are towns and areas that, where there's a little bit in Canada, a little bit in the U.S. The, the crossing's fairly straightforward. There's, mm-hmm. there's hundreds of miles of unprotected border between Canada and the U.S. It, it, it's just not practical to protect a lot of those borders. So it's a matter of, of looking at the risk of people coming in um, and what they would bring in, the cr- criminality, drug, the flow of drugs. So these factors are looked at by, by a country and the countries that it borders, and they decide maybe on the southern border in the U.S., they need to be more, more robust. There does need to be more physical barriers. They do need to take more stringent actions compared to the Canadian border, where there might be um, aspects that, that you know, they wouldn't need to be so concerned about, and they could limit that in a certain degree. So Border security is very important. But again, the research, I think, here, Scott, shows that a lot of the people that are coming in from Mexico into, into the states that are causing a problem, many of them do go through border checkpoints. Mm. There are issues with fake identification. There are issues with people overstaying their visa. There's refugees that come into the country claiming refugee status. So there's not a lot of research to suggest that there's just a really major problem with border security with respect to thousands of, of Mexican immigrants flowing over that border and committing crimes in the U.S. Most of them came through a border checkpoint. So so I think that, again, this was kind of rhetoric gone wild. Trump was trying to show that he's very tough on immigration, and that was one of the planks in that strategy. Of course, he's talking about doing away with sanctuary cities. He's talking about being very, very tough on, on immigrants from certain terror-prone countries, although it hasn't been defined yet. So there's lots of other uh, aspects, I think. But he put his marker down with this wall, <clears throat> and now we've got to eat his cake. And so we're going to see, I guess, how much funds can be 
expropriated for this wall, how much, um, how, what length of the wall, um, you know, is, is going to take. But I do see some challenges ahead. The announcement might come today, Scott, but I can't see construction happening for quite some time. Uh, you talked about how a lot of these people that he's concerned about are coming in through border checkpoints and just a porous security system. Uh, is this about creating a more robust security system as opposed to, quote, building a wall, which is obviously very highly symbolic? No, absolutely, Scott. And I mean, the reality, anyone that works in any field of security, this is national security here, border protection. Obviously, the stakes are very high. But the security principles apply throughout every realm of security, whether it's a building, a facility, a village, a town, a city, a country. Um, And and that talks about um, integration, different layers of security that all couple and fit together to make a more resilient protection model. So here, yes, of course, there are physical aspects. Look, think about your house. There are locks and, on your doors and windows. and There are ways that you're going to not allow someone to just waltz into your home. At the same time, um, there may be other aspects as well, like alarm systems. Technology can come in very useful to detect when a, a wrongdoer enters an environment or crosses over a border, and that can actually trigger um, attention from human beings who can then respond to that area. And in the area of securing borders, we have immigration policies and and procedures that apply. Only certain people are allowed in. The training of the border people, the level of staffing, the patrols that are done on the border, the use of drone and aerial technology. There's, There's maybe 10 to 12, Scott, different kind of security means that you could deploy. So it'd be ridiculous to think that just putting up a 40-foot wall is going to solve all the problems because people are still going to be able to, to get through the border points you know, yeah. with, with, you know, in certain ways. They're going to find a ways around this. The wall's not going to go to 2,000 miles. There's going to be still sections that aren't as, as robust. And there's a theory, Scott, in, in, in crime prevention and deterrence called displacement theory. And the more that you put security in a certain area, let's say you put, build a big wall, the bad guys or the wrongdoers or the people that are looking to defeat that are just going to go 20 miles further down the way, 20 miles further down the way and work around that wall. That was exactly my next question. It's like if they don't put it all the way across, which of course they can't physically do, then they're just going to go around it anyway, aren't they? That's exactly right. So that's why it's really an integrated strategy that needs to be you know, a mix of physical means. There may be some sections that need that wall, Scott. Yeah. I mean, I don't doubt for a second that there are some strategic areas along that border. Let's, let's, for argument's sake, say it's a couple hundred miles, 75, 100 miles, whatever. But it's a small proportion, I would say, likely, that A, is conducive for it, though the ground's not shifting, there's not rivers there, there's not, let's say, indigenous-owned land and other things that would be difficult to expropriate. Right. So, so these are all factors as well. Then maybe some double fencing, some other types. And then, again, these aerial surveillance where there's, radar, there's ground radar surveillance um, that can actually detect movement of human beings over border crossings. This, can be, this is part of the strategy. There are a number of things that you can do, and that's where I think we're going to end up here. And anyone that knows anything about security knows that it's not a one-trick pony. You can't, put, you can't fortify 
without having technology and procedures and, and human aspects to it as well. And all of those things hold hands and come together to form a resilient protection mechanism, Scott. David Hyde is with a security consultant. David, over and above the wall and this political argument and, you know, the discussion between Mexico and the United States, isn't this just good security considering the time that we live in now? I mean, again, I, I look back to what's going on with Europe. I mean, we're just living in a time now where we have to keep better control of this. Is that overreacting? Well, I mean, I think it's a matter of of, um, of proportion, Scott, right? I mean, like we were saying earlier, there's a degree of risk around borders, and the, and the risk from the Mexican border is greater in some respects than on the Canadian border with respect especially to the movement of drugs. Mm-hmm. Drugs do move across the Canada-U.S. border also, but the, you know, guns and weapons move across the Mexican-U.S. border, and that is a constant ongoing challenge, as well as, of course, um, illegal immig- immigrants coming over and staying in the country or, or just kind of coming in uh, anonymously. So it is a concern, right? Mm-hmm. And so we do need to do something about it. But to think that we need to just throw up a wall kind of all the way around, I don't think that's going to be effective. The wall is good for deterrence, Scott. If you're someone that's wanting to to get into another country and you have to scale a very difficult physical object that's almost impossible to scale without some very specialized equipment and it would take a lot of rigmarole to do so, that can act as a deterrent and it may prevent somebody from doing that. They may have to find another means or may give up the idea. But again, it's all a matter of balance. You're going to put some very physical and very in-your-face security elements where you need it along a perimeter. But then in other areas, you can have signs that, that a fence and signs that say this area is radar patrolled or under, you know, radar surveillance. Mm-hmm. And anyone knows that as soon as they climb over that wall and walk 20 feet, they're going to be setting off alarm bells in a control center somewhere, and there's going to be a border agent that's going to be sent to, to investigate. So this it, it really is a, a, a confluence of measures. But the, the good thing about a border wall, Scott, is it's very, very self-evident. It's not kind of flying in the sky or some kind of symbolic type thing. It is in your face. But again, I don't think it's practical to, to assume that what Mr. Trump had talked about, securing the whole border or even significant portions, will come about. I just don't think there's going to be the money. I don't think there's going to be the practical ability to build that wall in many areas along that border. Will this open a broader discussion of border security in general, whether it's airports, this sort of thing? I mean, again, should this all be part of one sort of package? Yeah, it should be. I mean, Mr. Trump is you know, exceptional at, at media manipulation and, and message. And so he obviously yeah. made certain promises to his base and to the American people. And, and he's living those out now. And so I'm looking for the other announcements that are going to come through today. I think there are going to be, I believe, what we're hearing is there's going to be announcements on other forms of illegal immigration, a crackdown, more staffing in terms of the catch programs to try and uh, you know, catch criminals. One of the really key things in my view, Scott, is not releasing an illegal immigrant who's uh, um, you know, committed a crime, not releasing them prior to their court dates. So they just disappear, and then they end up committing more serious crimes. Mm. These, th- this is happening in the U.S. right now quite a lot. That, I believe, is one of the orders that may come through today, or so the reporting goes, from these executive orders that are planned today um, from, from the White House. So yeah, I'm looking for a lot more measures beyond this, Scott, and I would not be surprised to see um, airport security reviewed, uh, border security, 
uh, sea and land crossings. I would not be surprised at all that they're going to look at the staffing of those. They're going to look at, you know, um, the, the, the procedures that are in place, the visa entry requirements. You know, there's talk about that there may be some changes to visas in terms of entry into the U.S. from terror-prone countries. You may not be able to get a visa, period, if you are in one of those countries. So, again, the, all these things need to be worked through. But undoubtedly, it, it's not going to be successful, ultimately, Scott, unless it's an integrated strategy of all these different means that come together to make an effective program. And I'm guessing that involves both sides. So where's Mexico on this? Doesn't it take two sides to secure the border? It it certainly does, Scott, to a degree. Certainly, I mean, the whole concept of security is early detection. We want to know as early as possible when somebody is approaching or crossing the border. So it's ever so much easier if we have what we call a DMZ or demilitarized zone in between two fences, let's say, for example, where one fence resides on the Mexican side, but it's Mexico saying, this is the edge of our territory that we, that we will allow people to go to. This area here is a transition point to another country. You will not enter this area. And if somebody does enter the area, then the, the Mexicans get a, get a trigger. The Americans are monitoring it also, and they can then respond and preempt the uh, movement over the U.S. border. This is early warning security, and that's what us security professionals build our security programs on. So, yeah, that's very desirable. So the more Mexico will cooperate, the better. However, they've said, Mr. Trump, we ain't paying for your border wall. You can puff your chest out all you like. We're not paying for it. You remember this very famous... Uh, expletive-laden statements from the ex-Mexican president to that effect, Scott, that was reported. So they do not want to pay for that wall. So ultimately, there's a lot of wheeling and dealing. Trump is the master negotiator. There's trade agreements talked back and forward. There's a number of things that are being discussed, and I would not uh, be surprised at all that the wall funding would form part of a larger package of measures that are discussed between the two countries at a diplomatic level to say, look, you're going to pay 20% of this wall so I can tell the American people that Mexico did pay for some of it, then we will remove these trade tariffs and you can do this and we'll do this. It's a game of chess, Scott, at the highest diplomatic levels, and that's what I expect this wall to kind of fall onto that plate. Uh, I, I, I some question whether it would be started or not. Uh, I think it will be. I just wonder if it will ever be finished. Well, I mean that's the question, right? I mean, obviously this man's in for four years. If you if you believe his rhetoric, and he certainly believes he'll be in there for eight. And who'd be surprised if he didn't try and deal with term limits and maybe try and get twelve or sixteen, Scott? By the time uh, things are over here, and I'm being a little bit tongue in cheek, but you know these presidents that talk about four year terms, right? So. There's no way that wall is going to be completed, of course, within that time, even if it was, um, you know, half or so of the full border. So, yes, I'm, I'm with you. I think it'll be started. I think Trump needs to show construction. He needs to show plans in place um, and, and, and actual, you know, boots on the ground and, and, and some work taking place. But I'm with you. I think you'll see uh, a limited amount of construction in very, very strategically chosen areas, probably areas that the media can access pretty easily, too, to make sure the coverage is there to find the flames of, 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 of Trump's success stories. Um, and then from there, I, I'm with you. I don't think we're going to see completion. I think you're going to see probably a piecemeal approach. You're going to see Trump getting, whether it's permission for funding or however it works, for uh, a sample 30-mile stretch just to prove concept. That's the first thing. 
there'll be a big song and dance and a glass, a bottle of champagne will get smashed against that wall and Trump's going to be there with his thumbs up and his Make America Great Again hat on and everyone's going to be happy. And then they're going to talk about the next 50 miles, the next 80 miles. That's how kind of I see this unrolling, Scott. So you don't see this changing Canada-U.S. border control in any way, do you? I don't, but I do. I, I know that, and I and I, um, I you know I think it's quite common knowledge that the U.S. and Canadian authorities have already started very preliminary discussions under the new Trump administration. I mean, Trudeau obviously has reached out. Uh, there have been discussions between advisors, and and the two leaders have spoken, as you know. Um, but there are are already discussions underway with respect to border security. Um, obviously, trade uh, the, the, between the borders is a massive issue. The, f- the free flow of trade. Um, there, the, um, previously to the Trump administration, there were agreements in place that are not complete with, between Canada and the U.S. with respect to border controls, with respect to having American immigration agents on the Canadian side of the border um, to kind of pre-clear people across and vice versa. So these are all things, Scott, that are kind of in, 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 uh, in movement right now. They're not complete. So I would expect, knowing Mr. Trump, he's going to want to reopen those negotiations, make sure that the Americans are getting what they believe they need out of those deals. I think there'll probably be a bit of restructuring and, and finagling. And I wouldn't be surprised to see some modifications to border security between Canada and the U.S., but I don't expect it to bog things down, Scott. I think it will be, if anything intended to try to make the movement of people and and trade more free-flowing as opposed to encumbering it down with other measures of security. David Hyde has been with us, security consultant David Hyde and Associates, talking about the wall. David, thanks for the time and insight. As always, much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. So lots of chatter uh, going back to, it's all happening so fast my head is spinning, going back to Monday and NAFTA. Uh, uh, we're going to open that thing, he said. We're going to da 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 and, and many people have said, many experts have said on this show that there's nothing wrong with opening NAFTA. It's been around for uh, a couple of decades, 25 years, and there's a lot of the ways the, the Internet, for example, the economy's changed a great deal. So it's probably need for, or in, in time for an update of some sort. But of course, Donald's method of of negotiation is I'm going to kill the whole thing. And then that automatically puts, you know, the opposition uh, on notice and they back down a little bit. They go, oh, you know, we got to cut our losses here. So they don't come out as as hard. It's it's, it's an old time negotiation technique. Uh, And it'll be interesting to see if that's what happens with the wall. Of course, you know, where that has been over the past and through the campaign. Well, now, the Mexican president has made it clear that not only is he not paying for the wall, but on NAFTA, uh, we'll bail too if it's not worth it for us. How much bargaining power do they have? Is this a one-sided fight or is it a three-sided fight? Uh, Gus Van Harten is with us, associate professor at Osgoode Hall Law School, York University, teaches administrative law, international investment law, and governance of the international uh, finance system. And Gus Van Harten is with us now. Hello, Gus. How are you today? Hi, I'm fine. Nice to hear from you, Scott. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. So when does it become advantageous for Mexico to leave NAFTA? Uh, well, if Trump's demands are uh, putting uh, America first, 
and Mexico last, at a certain point, uh, you would just say, fine, uh, terminate NAFTA, we're better off uh, without it, we'll fall back on, on the World Trade Organization rules. So do they have much bargaining power here? Well, their only real bargaining power, I th- well, they have, you have a bit of bargaining power, Canada and Mexico, but of course the U.S. is in the driver's seat because of its size. Uh, they can uh, put you against the wall by threatening to close their market to your exports. And they're just such a bigger market that you depend on them a lot more than they depend on you. So they're in the driver's seat, and uh, Trump has been talking tough by saying he's prepared to terminate NAFTA. Uh, so the only thing you can do is say, well, that's fine, we're happy to talk to you, but if, it's not, if your demands are not acceptable to us, uh, then uh, go ahead and terminate it, and we have a plan B. And if you don't have a plan B, then you're just like a lamb to the slaughter. Obviously, uh, NAFTA means more to Mexico than it does to the United States. Is that accurate? Well, I'm not, I wouldn't say it means more to Mexico than the United States. NAFTA has been hugely beneficial to a lot of U.S. companies because it gave them access to a cheap labor platform within North America mm-hmm. that they could exploit and then export from back into the U.S. market, also the Canadian market, but they're primarily focused on the U.S. market. So, um, you know, Mexico also, a lot of Mexicans took a huge hit from NAFTA, especially uh, farmers. A lot of small-scale farmers were wiped out by NAFTA, huge numbers of them, because uh, NAFTA opened Mexico up to heavily subsidized agricultural exports from the United States. So these small farmers couldn't compete with that in Mexico. They get right. wiped out, and guess what fuels the migration crisis yeah. in the United States? There you go. Um, so, you know, at a certain point, Mexico already gave up a lot in in NAFTA, and if they have to give up a lot more to keep it, um, I would say the same thing about Canada. You know, if Trump starts coming after public health care, for example, which he might, with the uh, HMOs in the U.S. behind that, then uh, Canada should just say, thanks a lot, you can terminate NAFTA on six months' notice. We don't agree to any changes. So, What about the w- tone? Sorry, go ahead. Well, I just want to explain that with NAFTA, there's basically... Um, you know, two things that can happen. All three countries have to agree to any change at all in the treaty, or one of the countries can terminate it on six months' notice. So that gives you your structure for bargaining. And if you're Canada or Mexico and you at all costs cannot see NAFTA terminated, well, then you're just going to get wiped out. Is this all hype? Is it time for an update anyway? Uh, Yeah, the problem with trade agreements is you can't change them over time like you can your laws of mm-hmm. your country. If things aren't going away, you, you know, the legislature can revise your laws. But with a trade agreement with multiple countries, they hardly ever get changed uh, because it's just too much of an effort uh, or one country blocks it. Uh, so, um, you know, I think, uh, yes, they could be subject to updates that would be useful. There are a lot of real problems in NAFTA. For example, it has extraordinarily generous foreign investor rights clause that is very controversial and in my view was a huge mistake for Canada to agree to it in the first place. If that could be uh, eviscerated from NAFTA tomorrow, we should be jumping for joy. But I worry that when you open it up, uh, Donald Trump will will be representing the interests of, uh, I mean, I think it's a fair guess, um, 
American billionaires, at least the ones he's been appointing to his cabinet. And if you look at the connections of them to, to big companies, you know, it is a bit threatening what kind of things they could go after here in Canada. Uh, this Is this a lot of work for a minimal outcome? Is this worth it? You mean to... Uh, to, rene- you know, to renegotiate this, NAFTA? Well, I think from Trump's point of view, it's, it's obviously a huge political benefits to attack trade agreements that are rightly connected, at least to some degree, to the uh, declining um, you know, standard of living of a lot of Americans, a lot of American workers who have lost good, well-paying jobs with good benefits because the production was shipped to overseas, uh, or often it was shipped first to southern U.S. states that gave, uh, you know, paid more subsidies and gave tax breaks to the companies, or it went to Mexico or went to China, and the trade agreements facilitated that. So I think, in that sense, it's it's fair for people to to target the trade agreements. Um, you know, is it worth it in the end? Uh, <laughs> it's hard to say what's going to come out of all the talk. What about the tone of the talk? How will negotiations go after the sort of tough talk? Because again, it's not really, hey, maybe it's time for a refresher. Let's us all let us all get together and discuss this. It's not nah, none of this works, and we're going to blow it up. And if you don't like it, tough darts. Why the hard approach? How does that? How is that advantageous in the negotiation process? Well, it's Donald Trump throwing around uh, U.S. muscle, yeah. and the U.S. has a lot of muscle, and it's uh, it's tough talk, and it's soft. Is it trying to soften us up? And the best response to that, if you're heading into a negotiation, don't soften up. You got to get harder. Uh, you got to prepare your country to take risks to protect things that are near and dear to your country. And there are a lot of things in Canada that are at risk: jobs, first and foremost. I already mentioned health care. Um, talk about talk about the healthcare connection. Elaborate a little bit more on that. What do you mean? Well, from the point of view of a private healthcare company, like an HMO in mm-hmm. the United States, a private health insurer, Canada is like a virgin market yeah. because we've been a closed market to them. The core health services have to be delivered in Canada through the public insurer because that's how our system's been designed to make it accessible, uh, make it more cost-effective than the United States and, and so on. Uh, so they, they've they long uh, regarded the Canadian healthcare market with, you know, um, I wouldn't say they were drooling in anticipation of getting in, but it would be a, a, a prime target for them. Yeah. And uh, it would be a ghastly mistake for the Trudeau government, federal government, to go into this thinking uh, we're, we're prepared to compromise on something as important as, as, as a core value like uh, public health care. Where are unions on things like NAFTA? I remember way back when, when this was all being negotiated, unions were, this was going to be the death of us all. Now that they're talking about changing it, unions are saying, oh, wait a minute. So is this good or bad? I think this is where uh, unions in different sectors and different countries are, are going to be pitted against each other. Uh, right now, it's it's a it's an economic nationalism that's being brought to the surface in the United States, and uh, as part of that is a sense where well, we want um, you know American jobs for American steel workers and American factories, and that doesn't sound very good for Canadian 
steel workers, uh, the ones that are left, and Canadian workers and uh, softwood lumber is another good example. You know, where if we cut down trees in Canada, where are the jobs that come from processing the logs into lumber? Where are those jobs going to happen? in Canada, the United States. Perennial conflict, all this tough talk makes you worried that there'll be tremendous pressure on the federal government to make compromises that sacrifice uh, jobs in Canada. So, uh, obviously, Mexico has now gotten into the tough talk. Canada has, luckily, it's well, especially after yesterday and the pipeline announcement, it's funny how we go from NAFTA on Monday to pipeline on Tuesday and automatically the you can almost feel the temperature of the country change. Uh, this is quite a balancing act, isn't it? Oh, yeah, sure. And and it seems to me that the federal government, it probably makes a lot of sense. They're, they're playing it safe and cautious. They've already signaled that they're willing to uh, let Mexico be the primary uh, target and to stand up to that, you know, primarily on their own. Um, but I think... I think it's a mistake to get complacent and think that uh, we aren't going to have important interests at stake, too. And at a certain point, they have to make clear to Canadians that they're going to take a tough stand when it when it really counts. The last thing I want is to be reading, the, you know, the hundreds of pages of a revised NAFTA and find all these devils in the details that Canadians were never really informed about and that we, we gave into because of this, um, you know, this blustering tough talk from... Uh, from the Trump administration. Is the blustering tough talk of a Monday neutralized on a Tuesday when all of a sudden everyone's giving everyone high fives for a pipeline? That must mean good relations that will help towards these other discussions. No? Yes? Uh, I haven't followed that, the, the, the Keystone Pipeline debate, close enough. Uh, I see it as uh, something that the U.S. Uh, oil and gas industry wanted all along, and that probably explains why it's happening. I don't <laughs> really see this as Trump showing uh, some kind of favor to Canada. In fact, um, at least some Canadians... It's certainly not a favor to Canada, but it certainly benefits Canada, and it certainly made a lot of Canadians happy. Yeah, well, on the other hand, I, I haven't, as I said, I haven't followed it too closely, but I've heard some say, but this is really a pipeline that ships Canadian value-added jobs from refining the bitumen down to, down to Texas. Now, I, I want to say I haven't looked closely enough at what the impact of a pipeline like that is on prospects for value-added jobs in Canada from bitumen extraction. Um, but, you know... I mean, I put it this way, I think it's it's something that if it does benefit Canada, it's incidental to um, to the reasons why Trump probably did it. Uh, a timeline on NAFTA. How long will this take to get settled? Well, uh, if the negotiations aren't going the way that the Trump administration wants, uh, they, they just give six months notice or they can do that right now. Um, and put the negotiators under the gun in that way. And if that happens, I would say odds are that uh, NAFTA would be um, would be headed towards termination in fairly short order. Especially what the what the Mexicans have have now been saying uh, about um, calling the bluff. How does the world, the rest of the world, view this? That that NAFTA could be falling. Ooh, that's a that's a big question. Let, let me just focus on uh, China a bit because those are the two countries that stood out the most in, in uh, Trump's um, 
campaigning talk um, because they've been the primary cheap labor platforms with which American workers have had to really unfairly uh, have to compete. Um, China, there's no specific trade agreement with China. China's part of the World Trade Organization, and Trump cannot blow up the World Trade Organization. He could pull the United States out of it, but that's a, that's a much taller order than NAFTA. Uh, I think you're going to find other ways in which a, a trade war is pursued against China, and that that actually worries me more than the NAFTA situation, because a heightened conflict between the United States and China, I don't think that leads to a good place in the world. Uh, even with the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which America has already pulled out of, they're even talking about a substitute being China. Is that a possibility? Uh, the, yeah, they're, ta- they're talking about trying to bring China into the Trans-Pacific Partnership. I would have thought that's highly unlikely because the Chinese will have their own negotiating priorities and they're not just going to be willing to slot in for the United States. I think more likely you'll see the same countries shifting towards some of the Chinese-led proposed agreements, such as the uh, one of them has the acronym RCEP, R-C-E-P. And uh, this is not all, uh, you know, roses and perfume for Canadians. Uh, Start learning about the RCEP instead of the TPP, and you may find you have just as many reasons for concern about that uh, trade agreement. I don't see China as just this automatically benign replacement for the United States. If anything, China could sense the vulnerability of a country like Canada and uh, be very much prepared to exploit that in trade negotiations with us. Hmm. Gus Van Harten has been with us, Associate Professor at Osgoode Hall Law School, York University. Gus, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Nice talking to you. Have a great day, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Yesterday we were talking to uh, Gary Grant of uh, the Ontario Coalition Against Contraband Tobacco. And, you know, Gary's out there pounding away at uh, these stats and metrics that come out uh, every few months that tell us exactly how much money is being lost by the government to contraband tobacco. And that I guess the latest are that a third of the butts bought in Ontario aren't through your normal uh, outlets. They're, you know, off reserves and uh, illegal cigarettes. Someone sent me a note yesterday and it basically said... Uh, 16 bucks, something like that, for uh, the carton on the reserve versus 90 or 100 bucks uh, in the store. So, really, who's the criminal? Valid point. Uh, but with obviously such leaks in uh, with cigarettes and, and contraband tobacco, is that going to be the case when it comes to marijuana? Because who knows? Maybe Trump will want to build a wall between Canada and the United States once this all happens. I'm making that up. But as RF says, uh, in solving all of uh, Trump's problems, you know, he gets them banged off every day of the week. He rests on Sunday because that's his day of rest. RF thinks the wall will be completed right the way across the country. It'll only be three feet high, though. Be more like a hedge. Less of a wall and more of a hedge. That's what Canada has. Mexico is the wall. Canada will have the hedge. A pot hedge, no doubt. 
Uh, anyway, so uh, obviously with the issues and the leaks and the holes in the tobacco industry in Canada, some are concerned how we will manage this when marijuana comes onto the scene. Joining us now, now Dan Malik is with us, health scientist, professor, Brock University, author of Try to Control Yourself, the Regulation of Public Drinking and Post-Prohibition uh, Ontario. That's his old book. We, we got to get it. Let's talk about his new. Dan, what's your new book, your latest book? Oh, um, uh, When Good Drugs Go Bad. There you Opium. go. Medicine and the Origin of Canada Drug Canada's Drug Laws. They both sort of relate to this topic, I think. I so, so uh, good to talk to you, Dan. How you been? <laughs> Happy New Year. Uh, same to you. Same <laughs> to you. I've been well. And you? Good. Thank you. Thanks for taking the time to join us, as always. So when you look at the holes in the tobacco industry and mm-hmm. as what the contraband people said yesterday, that a third of the butts bought in Ontario are contraband, what does that say? How does that reflect in the discussion regarding marijuana? Yeah, it's a, it's a tough one to sort of analyze. I mean, as much as both of these products are smoked, um, for the most part, I mean, you know, cannabis has other forms. Um, tobacco has been on a sort of a, a downward swing as far as the stigma goes, or an upward swing of stigma, right? So it's been increasingly uh, demonized, uh, seen as something you shouldn't be consuming, and the the tax and excise sort of regime has been designed to discourage right to discourage um, uh, tobacco smoking right um but cannabis right now i mean part of the reason for the medicalization or for the well the medicalization and the legalization movement is because of the medical uh um a big push from the medical side of it from the therapeutic use of cannabis so it's got much less of a stigma around its consumption. So I think that goes into part of the taxation regime. And I know that some people have said, well, you know, we, we are comparing cannabis to um, to, uh, to liquor uh, regulation, but let's consider it uh, in, with, toba- if with result um, in comparison to what's going on with tobacco. But I don't know if that's as fair a comparison because of the way the substance is being used and sort of the sort of the culture around it, not the culture, but the image around it, if that makes any sense, whereas tobacco... Sure, obviously, P- aren't as, good, sure, I mean, obviously not as many people are smoking now as once as once uh-huh. did, so uh, is this really a big issue for the government as far as contraband cigarettes? Because uh, a third of the people that are buying cigarettes are buying contraband, but it's only maybe 20% or whatever of the population that smokes. I don't know what the numbers now are. Uh, yeah. I'll say 30% somewhere in there? I don't know. Um, uh, of people who, I think it's about 21%. Who smoke cigarettes. So there you go. So at the end of the day, it is it is a small percentage of Canadians. On the other yeah. hand, though, as you've uh-huh. mentioned, pot, lots more popular. So mm-hmm. how, y- mm-hmm. you know, those holes are going to grow bigger because it is something that is in higher demand. Well, it could be. I mean, this is one of the challenges of uh, moving something from uh, criminal to, to non-criminal, like to, to legal, because it has been a black market product right with them um, in uh, and and distributed by you know it through various illegal networks i don't want to say criminal networks because some people are just growing it on their back porch and selling it right um but that's illegal uh but um at the, at the same time that uh the, the the report on cannabis legalization for example had some clear statements about Making sure the taxation and the sort of the the costs associated with it are are, are realistic, right? And I, or that's not the word, but sort of are managed so that it doesn't have that kind of 
so it isn't priced out of the legal market. And yeah. this is something, again, that happened with alcohol. I think that the alcohol comparison is much a much better comparison because uh, the concern was how do you break the hold of the legal or of the illegal distribution of this product by making it, um, you know, by making it legal, but not make, but also generating revenue out of it and not generating so much revenue right. that, or, or so many taxes that you don't, uh, that you, you encourage people to go back to the illegal means. And there, there is still illegal distribution of alcohol and there is still, you know, there will always be a black market for products. But, you know, there is a black market for those perhaps buying things that aren't duty, this sort of stuff. But, you know, a lot of and people are making their own beer and they do make their own wine, but not to the extent uh, that it's making an impact on commercial sales or such. Will that be different with marijuana? Yeah, it's tough to say. Uh, That's always my my pat answer, right? But um, because, as you said, I mean, there are people who make their own beer, make their own wine. Um, People can grow their own marijuana. That's that's something that will be included in that as well. My understanding is it's, it's something medical use uh, allows for your own growing. I don't know if... But we can't grow our own or, tobacco and produce cigarettes. And we look at the right. holes that we see now. I mean, it, will, right. it, it appears when we see the holes now that are in the contraband cigarette market, there's going to be bigger holes in the marijuana market. Is that, is that accurate? I don't think so. I, um, because uh, for the very point you just made is that we're not... We're not People are not growing their own tobacco and selling it. Um, I mean, growing their own tobacco and selling it or growing their own tobacco. Are you allowed to, though? Are you allowed to grow your own tobacco and smell it? I'm I'm afraid I I don't know. I I would be surprised if you weren't allowed to, but I, I, yeah, I don't I don't know anyone who does. I guess you'd have to take the two processes and compare them. I don't know what that is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We're all just uh, speculating at this point. But but when it comes down to the, the sort of the regulation and taxation of it, there the the point of legalization is to make it accessible and and break those um, those illegal uh, or the, the, those distribution systems that get it get them into the hands of the kids as they always talk about or. Um, uh, and, and don't generate revenue, right? Um, so what about what about this though? Distribution mm-hmm. will be controlled. We'll see. We're seeing that with pot mm-hmm. dispensaries now. They're busting pot yes. dispensaries because they, they haven't. Nothing's legal yet. They these guys right. are jumping ahead of the law and 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 I guess trying to configure a system before it's actually been configured by the government that will yeah. be legal for everybody. So at the end. Much like uh, alcohol or cigarettes, this will be a controlled sale of some of some sort. Uh, obviously, with things like contraband smokes and what's happening on the reserves and those getting off the reserve and then being sold, will we see the same thing happen with marijuana in the sense that now they'll start growing marijuana on reserves and then avoid laws through the same way they're avoiding laws with uh, sale and distribution of, to- of tobacco? They might. Like, why uh, would you I, sell tobacco yeah. when you could sell pot? Well, yeah, I, I, I really can't speak much about the tobacco on the, on the reserve situation. I know that tobacco within indigenous cultures has a different place, and so there was a protected kind of um, sense around that, um, whereas alcohol has a very different um, cultural place or yeah. lack of place in mm-hmm. a lot of the, that, those communities. Um, yeah, cannabis is going to be an interesting one. But we have to remember that one of the reasons for the high taxes on tobacco was to dissuade consumption. And when you have that, you open up a, 
a door for black market. Right. And as you noted, um, can, uh, tobacco is uh, low tax tobacco is permitted to be sold to other native people, right? To other indigenous yeah. people. That's their, their right. Mm-hmm. It's not supposed to be sold to others. So when it is sold to non-native people, they're breaking the law. And there might be an enforcement issue there. Uh, I don't know. I can't really speak about that. But when it comes to cannabis, the, the intention is to make it accessible enough and affordable enough to break the current uh, big system, right? So we're looking at two different things. We're looking at re- getting rid of a of a fully illegal system by creating some sort of legal access versus having a legal system that has opened up a lot of illegal access. One of the things that can happen, and this happened under, I think it was Mike Harris's government, is reducing some of the tobacco taxes, and illegal consumption did decline, right? Yeah. So that it's that connection between the price and um, and illegality that that needs to be managed uh, within cannabis, just as it was managed with liquor, and as it seems not to be managed well enough. And part of it is with tobacco, and part of it is because the nature of tobacco, or the the sort of culture we have around tobacco uh, um, is outside of native communities is uh, I, I can't even speak about that stuff, but is that it's it's a, a substance that's going to hurt you and therefore it needs to be heavily taxed to dissuade people from, from hmm. consuming it. That's the difference between that and cannabis. Um, so I think that some of the concerns it's worth taking notice of because it is another a tobacco is another control. Um, substance that is under a lot of control based on taxation and excise. But I still think that the alcohol model, the uh, de-prohibition model of alcohol that we saw in the 1920s is a better fit for understanding what will happen uh, with cannabis, even though it itself has, you know, isn't a perfect match to what is happening now. So you think uh, cannabis distribution will be a lot like the old days at the LCBO? Uh, you walk I, in, there's the old guy there, the pad of paper, he goes into the back room and comes out with it. Yeah, and you're bringing your pat- permit and you get them to sign it and stuff like that. Yeah. I don't know if that's the case because that was quickly, well, not quickly, but that that was found not just doesn't fit the, the, yeah, the LCBO. models of yeah. distribution. It's right. going to be interesting I mean, to see what they do shake down out of that because I think a lot of people did think it was just going to be the LCBO. Yeah, and um, the, the recommendation is that it isn't connected to... Um, liquor directly but um each province has its own a certain i mean those are recommendations that's not going to yeah. likely be part of the law and each province will have its own best way of dealing with it right uh with tobacco we've certainly seen massive declines over the years mm-hmm. and you know I, i'm sure taxation is a part of that but again for those that want to avoid tax there's always you know these other avenues to get their smokes mm-hmm. a lot cheaper education at the end of the day has seemed to work best of all. Is that accurate? I mean, rather than trying to restrict, do this, do that, if you just tell the people and then they make their own choices. Uh, there's a certain degree. Yeah, for sure. Um, education has been part of it. There's a, I mean, when I, I, in my health sciences classes, we talk about the role of public health information in, uh, we actually had a big discussion today in, in convincing people to change their habits. There's a certain, uh, interestingly, there's a certain amount of uh, public shaming involved in it as well. I mean, you have uh, you know, public health departments or agencies don't really want to admit to this, but when you 
say to people you have to smoke outside and then when it's 40 below <laughs> um, and then you have to smoke six meters from a building and then people are clustered and it, there's a certain amount of at some point people go okay you know what this is ridiculous i'm just going to stop um so there's there's all sorts of what we call um, infrastructure components to it right so taxation is part of it um, education is part of it just the making it inconvenient to smoke is part of it as well right yeah, good point. And so that just it makes an environment that is i can't say hostile there, there's a lot of you know sideways glances at people and people going oh, you know stuff like that um but also there's just a sort of a uh, it's where smoking becomes an outlier, uh, an outlier behavior, like a behavior of people sort of on the fringes. So literally, how are they? How are people? And you know, you see this all the time. It's way different now. I mean, if you see somebody smoking, like you said, they'll often get the snake eye, uh, which never would yeah. have happened decades ago. How is the balance going to be with marijuana? Is it going to be the same thing? Are people going to embrace it differently because? You know, it apparently isn't as bad for you as what cigarettes are. Um, Will society eventually look down on people who are consuming it? It's a really good question, and I'm really looking forward to seeing how this unfolds. And and, and I'm not going to answer your question because I think that it can go several ways. In my view, a lot of, as I said, a lot of times in public health, approaches there's a certain amount of shaming now will will tobacco i mean will cannabis have the same degree well there's a lot of research that's attempting to find um problems um, attempting to to lay to to link health problems to cannabis consumption but mm-hmm. so far it, there hasn't been nearly the kind of stuff that's behind tobacco or alcohol as a matter of fact um but at the same time it's a smoked thing right so mm-hmm. People, you know, our, our so-called clean air laws that introduced, you know, removing tobacco from um, from public consum- uh, public spaces and that will also uh, place ca- cannabis consumers in different spaces, right? So it, 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 when you're smoking around someone, even if you're vaping, people will be uh, see this as a as an imposition upon their space, right? Yeah. Upon the air they're breathing, upon the smell in their clothes, and all of that stuff. So that will probably persist. Uh, right now, if someone's smoking weed around you and you're not partaking, uh, a lot of people will be like, "Oh God, that's disgusting!" Right? Or I don't want to smell like marijuana or anything like that. But when it's legal, it's going to. There may be a critical mass of. Of people, I mean, this is all speculation of people saying, you know what, we need to do something about the amount of smoking that's going on. And they may link it also to psychoactiveness of cannabis. So it's like, if I'm, I'm not just getting secondhand smoke, I'm getting secondhand pot smoke, and I don't want to get high, sort of thing. Right? Hmm. Has that right? been, so, pro- has that been proven? Can that happen? I don't know. <laughs> I, I think so. I, isn't it called a contact high? Like being near someone who's smoking, yeah. uh, smoking weed, um, I have to think back on the times I've been around people smoking weed and how I felt about it. But well, it's like the old you know. concert days, man. You know, I remember the old <laughs> yeah. days in Maple Leaf Gardens, uh, Cops Coliseum. It was a cloud of smoke everywhere back in the. Sure. Yeah, does that mean everybody who was walking right. out was getting high? I don't know. It could be. Yeah, I, mean, I, 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 I can't speak authoritatively on it, but because I don't remember what I've read about this, but this is something that I. I've heard of. Right? Now, what about vaping? Where does vaping fit into the acceptability of all of this? Again, smoking a cigarette, taboo. 
yeah. if you're smoking and you're not, and someone's not partaking, and they're going to smell like uh, they've been smoking pot and they haven't, that's the same sort of stigma as a cigarette. Uh, what yeah. about vaping? Where does that fit in? Is that acceptable? Yeah, vaping is a really fascinating one to me. The 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 um, the people condemning vaping um, draws upon some of the same ideas that went into it's hard for me to sort of express this but you see in some communities or in some jurisdictions vaping is considered a reasonable alternative to smoking because yeah. you're not uh, it's not affecting other people it's not filling the room with smoke mm-hmm. it's you know you and and it's based upon an individual liberties uh, argument right which is well you have a right to smoke it's a legal product you just don't have a right to um, impose it on someone else. Right. But very quickly, a lot of public health authorities have said, well, this is a problematic behavior too. And I imagine they jumped on it because it's really, it's linked to tobacco consumption because there's smoke. Some people are vaping uh, nicotine, right? Mm-hmm. Ironically, uh, electronic cigarettes were developed as a way to help people yeah. maintain their habit and not have to smoke around people, right? Yeah. So it, so the stigma around vaping is fascinating. If you look at it in a sort of a symbolic way, when someone's vaping, they're producing a lot more vapor than a cigarette would be producing smoke, but it dissipates quickly, right? Yeah. So it's this, it's physically or vis- visibly a very strange thing. And I think people have almost a physical reaction to seeing something like that. But I was in a pub once in England and there was a guy vaping away and I went, wait a minute, this is... You can't smoke in here. And they're like, oh, he's just vaping. Okay, that's fine. Right? And, well, plus so you don't know what it is they're vaping. They could be yeah, vaping anything. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, <laughs> really. Uh, but uh, like they could be vaping cherry flavors or they could be vaping. Or it could know, be weed. Yeah, it could be weed. Um, but but is but the, the issue is, is that my problem that someone else is vaping? Yeah, yeah. That, right? And, and this is where the, the funny line when we started having, or it's a very strange line, when we started having um, uh, more tobacco prohibition, or, or at least exclusions, um, and I've never smoked, and I always thought that was great, I can go to a pub and not smell like smoke at the end, uh, but it also bothered me that it, it made the sort of shaming around it such a pastime. It's like, well, yeah. they're allowed to smoke, yeah. so what's, you know, so, so that's what the vaping thing is so fascinating, is because people... Some people are jumping on it because because people are able to get around those laws that others see as designed to stop them from smoking. Yeah. But it wasn't about stopping them from smoking. It was about stopping them from smoking around other people who didn't want to smoke. That was the only way those laws could get passed. But then it creates this whole idea that smoking is such a terrible thing and we have to stop everyone from smoking right now. And, and that gets kind of a little... It's a little over the top for me. Dan Malik has been with us, health sciences professor, Brock University, talking about, of course, what laws will be like regarding marijuana uh, and comparing that to the contraband situation with Ontario cigarettes. Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks a lot, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.